Today on Teaching in Higher Ed's 100th episode, Dave and I celebrate this milestone by talking about failure. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this 100th episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. He graduated with honors from Oxford. He has two PhDs, one in economics from the University of Zurich and another in neurobiology from Harvard. His seven-page CV documents ample publishing and presenting successes. Why has Johannes Haushofer been generating such a massive amount of tweets and an article in the Harvard Business Review? It actually isn't for any of that stuff. It's for his CV of failures. And in this CV, he lists the degree programs he didn't get into, the academic positions and fellowships he didn't get, the paper rejections from academic journals. And I'll be posting a link to the article about his CV of failures at teachingandhighered.com slash failure. Sorry, slash 100, speaking of failures. (laughs) And today on the show, we're not going to be talking about success. It's all about failure today, but the kind of failure we can celebrate because we're still being shaped into being more effective teachers because of what we've learned from the experience. And I can think of no better person to celebrate 100 episodes of Teaching in Higher Ed and what our failures in teaching can mold us into being today as educators than my best friend, my husband, my partner in teaching often, Dave Stahoviak. Dave, welcome back to the show. I, I was so wondering how you were going to phrase that. Of, I'm glad to welcome today's expert in failure. <laughs> <laughs> there really is no one better. Well, this I, guy with the two PhDs, he's got nothing on you. <laughs> uh, seriously. And it, but uh, it is interesting in thinking about this episode and recording it today, how much I do as uncomfortable as it is, how much I realize failure, both in business and higher education, is so valuable for learning. So I'm really excited for the conversation today. And and in fact, today's episode was in parts inspired by a failure you had in a past episode, which was rather amusing to me. <laughs> you know, Dave, how much I have admired Ken Bain. Yeah. It was actually his book, What the Best College Teachers Do, that was the very first book that I read about teaching in higher ed. And just the thought that he accepted the invitation to come be on the show made me both exhilarated and terrified all at the same time. And we did the interview and it went well and we got done. And he actually was full of regret that he had not mentioned something on the show. And I explained to him, you know, that's not a problem at all. I can just press record and and we can capture anything you'd like to add to the episode. And he was excited about that and began speaking about things that at the time I didn't know anything about. He's talking about the Minerva Prize. It's a half a million dollar prize that was awarded to Dr. Eric Mazur. And I'm typing as fast as I can go and, and excited that he's going to get to share this thing that he really wanted to share about on the episode. And so I went back and pressed record and said, 
Tell me about the manure award. And autocorrect had changed the Minerva Prize over to the Manure Prize. <laughs> and ever since re- <laughs> ever since recording that episode, it's been it just makes me smile because I'm so embarrassed that I would have done something like that with such a magnificent expert on the show. But also it's also made me think we should have a manure award. There should be an award. <laughs> For things that happen like that. And so we just decided to put together a manure award and ask people to share their failures and especially failures that are still shaping them as educators today. Am, am I remembering right that that episode did air with you talking about the manure award with Ken Bain? Yes, Is that it's how on it, there. That's, that's, that's awesome that it's archived that way. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, you know, it's funny because this all comes full circle for me too, because I went, I did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, or at Urbana-Champaign rather. Shame on me for getting the name of the school wrong. And it's a great agriculture school. In my freshman year, I was in the dorms that were right next to the South Farms. And so I correlate waking up for a higher education experience with smelling manure multiple times times a year. And so there's just something that seems so right to me about good quality higher education and manure. Well, that's all wonderful. The all the same time. And I know you know this about me already, but it always reminds me of some of my favorite experiences growing up and getting to go to horse camp. And so I smell manure even today and I'll just be reminded of great times in my childhood. So I actually am one of the few people that rather enjoys a good smell of manure. Well, there you go. See, that's a great setup for our conversation today. <laughs> Your dad told me a story actually about you helping a neighbor carry bags of manure into his backyard. Yep. And that you actually were, you've been paid in manure I was in the paid past. In you manure. received yes. one of the bags for yourself. That's not the word that was used around our household when the, <laughs> when the story was told. Um, but yes, I got paid in manure. And boy, have I. Have I learned the importance of higher education from that? <laughs> Making sure I get more and more opportunities to use my cognitive skills. I think that's why manure is the perfect theme for today's show. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to be sharing some of the stories and Dave's going to be sharing some of the stories. People, some of them called in and left a message for us. And then some of them sent in some written words and we'll be reading those words on their behalf. And we're going to start out with... Wait, 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 wait. hang on a second. So is, is there a award at the end here? Is this a competition for... That's this, the part I'm not... This this is a competition, yes. Oh, okay. So, uh, so there'll be a, there will be an award given at the end of these. So be listening. Dave's parents are in town and they had all sorts of ideas about what we could send the recipient of the manure award, but we need to find a good agriculture professor who's got access to some, some cattle. This first message is from Dr. Katie Linder. And if you haven't heard me talk about it already on the show, she is the host of the recently launched Research in Action podcast. And I've listened to every episode that she has released. It's such a nice parallel to this podcast because we don't talk about research here. And that's all she talks about over there. And it's just wonderfully produced. And I, I would highly suggest that people listen. It's the Research in Action podcast. And here is Katie's message. Hi, Bonnie. This is Katie, and I'm calling in response to your request for sharing a story of a teaching failure for the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And the one that still sticks with me is when I was a graduate student in Women and Gender Studies, I hadn't yet learned the benefit of allowing discomfort in the classroom to create more of a teaching moment. 
And I remember a specific situation in which a student comment kind of riled everybody up in the classroom, and I decided to just very quickly move us on and try to try to move us on to kind of the next content piece. And I I know now that I moved us on too quickly, and it was really a space where a lot of learning could have occurred, and I was just too nervous to let it happen. I didn't have enough teaching experience to really revel in that moment. So it's something I think about a lot, and especially when I'm in situations where I'm working with students or faculty and we have a moment of discomfort. Now I know that we can really use those for important teaching and learning moments. So thanks so much for your podcast. Love listening and looking forward to future episodes. Bye. Katie, I loved your story because I've done that so many times. I didn't share about those failures because I was afraid I could just start and then that would be the episode. It would just be me talking about times when I rushed instead of slowing down. And I think even in the times when I didn't slow down in the moment, those times when I didn't realize that we all still have the right to go back and bring things up and say, you know, when we got together last time in class, this came up and I'd like to go back and talk about that a little bit and not really taking advantage of the opportunity to do that right after I had rushed through something because of a discomfort with it. So thank you for sharing that story with the whole community. One of the things that people who were writing in their stories were sharing about was just how vulnerable it is to share these these failures. So thanks for kicking us off, Katie. And Dave, I know you have a story to share from Jeff. I do. Jeff Hittenberger, who's a past guest on the show, wrote in and uh, Jeff writes, congratulations, Bonnie, on the 100th episode. You've created a fantastic resources, a resource for professors and other educators. I just listened to your interview with Stephen Brickfield on episode 98. Stephen shared about the ways we can be our own worst critics. I strongly identified with that strain of perfectionism that insists that unless every student in every class feels like every moment was a rich and profound learning experience, then I have failed. Often at the end of the semester, I found myself sitting in the classroom after the last student has left on the final day of class, feeling a vague sense of emptiness and asking myself, is that it? There was so much more I hoped would happen. We barely got started. Over time, I've come to recognize that these end of semester feelings are, for me at least, normal. I'm saying goodbye to students I've come to care deeply about, We've engaged together in learning, we've shared the journey for a little while, and now our paths diverge. I hate saying goodbye, mostly I'm just exhausted and I need to take a deep breath and get some rest. One last related thought, Bonnie, drawing on your episode 98 interview, Stephen rightly says that we should always engage with our students as adults. In addition to that, I liked your suggestion that maybe we should engage each other as children. Children play their hearts out, exhaust themselves, and then go take a nap. Lots of wisdom there, I think. Thanks again for the wonderful podcast, Bonnie. Here's to the next 100 episodes. I I don't know if I have anything to add to that. Thank you, Jeff, for the wonderful wisdom. The next story is from Angela Jenks, who, Dave, you mentioned just a moment ago. She's a recent guest, and I met her at the Lilly Conference. And it's neat because we're very, we live very close together, and it's just fun to meet someone else with such a passion for teaching in higher ed. And and I haven't gotten to do it yet, but I was so inspired by that conversation of wanting to go check out what she's doing with her syllabi online and the the visually appealing nature of it. I can't wait to go check those out. The story that she is going to share from us really resonates with me because it's all about context. Hello, and congratulations, Bonnie, on 100 episodes of Teaching in Higher Education. 
One of the the failures that I've experienced happened in one of my first classes. It was the my first class as a professor. Uh, it was the first day of class, and I was going over the syllabus with students. So, of course, we talked about the assignments, where they could do the readings, what they were going to have to turn in, all of their exams, all of the the various course policies. After my whole whole spiel about the syllabus, I stopped and asked, "Were there any questions?" And there was only one question that multiple students had, but it was the only question asked that day. And it was how much does the textbook cost? And I am ashamed to admit that I didn't know. I didn't know the the answer to that. It hadn't been something that I had really thought about when I had chosen chosen the books. And it is odd because I actually was a student in college who had trouble with textbook costs. That was a major major expense that I would have to to plan for. But I hadn't hadn't looked up. I hadn't considered what the books cost it cost when I was choosing textbooks. And that's something that I have definitely corrected in future classes. In fact, in that that course, in future forms of the syllabus, I would put the cost on the syllabus of what the textbook cost at the bookstore, what it cost on Amazon, what it cost through Chegg, and then that it was available free at the library. And it's been one of the the things that I've certainly considered when choosing textbooks now. And it turns out to be sometimes difficult to find out from publishers what this book will cost for students. But I always make sure to ask before I choose a, a textbook. Um, and it also has just affected the way that I I try to understand the the situations that my students are living in, the challenges that they have, and to think about how my course can can fit into to their lives and to consider who my students are in all of the the activities that I'm doing. This is such an important story. It's important for a few reasons. First, on its very basic level, it's important that we recognize the substantial cost that textbooks represent to our students. And I know for me, I recognize the privilege that I had going to college. And back then, you would actually go to the bookstore and you'd find your list of classes and you'd go pile them all up. And my parents have always been really big readers too. So there would never be any thought that you wouldn't read every word that was assigned to you. I mean, in the sense, I didn't read every word, by the way, that was assigned to me in my undergraduate experience. But my mom would come up and we'd get the books and she'd swipe the credit card and it was all done. And to recognize that that is not the experience that many of my students have is just so important. But then also on the broader level, just how important it is in terms of recognizing that our students are living in a different context than we often did. I could talk about this a long time, but I know well, I was just, we have more stories. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about this. I remember you telling me at one point you were considering books for a class and 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 one you had eliminated a book for a number of reasons, but one of them was the cost of the book. And I remember thinking when you were telling me that, I'm like, I, I probably would have never had that consideration until you talked about that as far as planning books for a course. And I could very easily have been her <laughs> in having that question come up in a classroom and not know the, because like you, that was my college experience. I had parents who were, you know, well often could pay for textbooks. And so I didn't have that journey that a lot of students do today. Our next story comes from Josh Eiler, who's been on the podcast a few times now. And thanks, Josh, to not not calling in, not writing in, but actually tweeting in your story. And for people who don't know this, you can actually collect a series of tweets that you would like to into a story. The website's called Storify, like story, but with the oh, if I was I in the middle this. of it. Yeah, and I did that for Josh's story, and that'll be in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 100. And I also did it for, I just participated while I was waiting for you to get home. 
Dave. I just participated in my first Canvas chat because our university is switching over to Canvas in the fall. So I am getting my hands on everything I can about Canvas. And I could just, the the guy who led it had six questions that he asked. And I could drag his questions over to Storify. And then as people were tweeting in their responses, I could just click and drag them and easily reorder them. And what a nice environment it is as far as ordering things just how you want it. And one of the guys who I'm connected with on Twitter, he had embedded a video and the videos even turn out really great on Storify too. It's a little bit of a tangent, but since I haven't mentioned Storify before on the show, I think it's a great resource if you want to curate tweets. And this is Josh's story about his teaching failure. Over a series of tweets. And so he writes in and says, Bonnie's doing an episode on her podcast on failure. She asked me if I could contribute a teaching failure. Here goes. My most productive failure as a teacher involved giving quizzes as a mechanism to ensure students have read for the class. As a student, I'd taken tons of reading quizzes. Nearly every instructor I knew gave quizzes. It seemed like the thing to do. I taught my first lit survey, medieval English literature, when I was finishing grad school, and of course, I included reading quizzes. One day I was teaching the poem Pearl in translation. I gave a reading quiz on the basics of the poem, i.e. a father's grief. No one did well, and I know that many of them read the material. What purpose do these quizzes actually serve, I wondered. From that moment on, nearly 12 years ago, I've never given another quiz. Instead, at that time, I shifted to a one-page reading responses that engaged with the text in some way. This has since evolved to using discussion form in an LMS to ask questions for which students provide a response before class. It's one question per class requirement. Answers must be at least 200 words and deal analytically with the text. Students are not graded on content, just that they complete the required number. This has turned out to be more engaging for them and less grading for me. I read them, but use the LMS analytics to see the numbers. I learned from the reading quiz failure that I didn't want students to know trivia. Instead, I wanted them to engage. Great lesson. Absolutely. Those lessons that we can learn when we ask ourselves the question, why? Are we asking our students to do this? The next story is from Michelle Miller, also a past guest and author of Minds Online. And she wrote a story and she she told me in advance that I could bleep out the curse words in the story <laughs> or otherwise do whatever I would like with it. And while I am not afraid of colorful language, I did watch all the seasons of The Wire And there is quite a bit of language in that wonderfully produced show. However, I also really enjoy listening to podcasts when my kids are in the car. And one of my favorite podcasts I can never listen to now because our children are, our daughter's old enough to be a parrot when she hears words that sound interesting. And our son is even older than her and can really recognize, I think, sometimes when things may not be appropriate and when he could get some attention for, although we, we've actually somehow, somehow miraculously not taught him any words like this. But so I'm going to be replacing a colorful four-letter word that begins with the letter F with the word banana. There you go. Yes. I was teaching a meeting of the undergraduate research methods course in the summer session. These accelerated sessions mean that the class meets four days a week for around two hours a day, which is a long time for anyone to stay focused on topics like survey construction and error variance. Fatigue was surely setting in already as I concentrated 
on answering one student's involved question about study design. As I got further and further into my explanation, I was dimly aware of a bit of chatter coming from the other side of the room. It didn't seem all that distracting, though, so I just raised my voice a bit and kept on going. After a minute, the unmistakable sound of arguing voices managed to penetrate my consciousness. A moment later, the dialogue became crystal clear. Shut the banana up. No, you shut the banana up. No, you shut the banana up. Two women sitting next to each other. Do you like the banana? I thought it was uh, quite a good artistic <laughs> rendition of of this uh, dialogue. Because we don't have a beep, so it's the best we could do. I was so wondering if you were going to mess up and say the actual word. <laughs> Two women sitting next to each other were now fully engaged in a screaming match. I used my most commanding tone to send the rest of the class on break and ordered the two screamers to follow me to my office now. Good thing it was a long walk as it gave me time to ponder the fact that I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do once I got them there. I closed the door behind us and having no other ideas simply said, you both know the right way to act in class and that was not it. So what are we going to do now? They looked at each other and immediately broke down in a rush of apologies. I said firmly, I apologize for not keeping order in the class as I should have done. Let's forget about it and move on. We left, I reconvened the class, and I went on like nothing had happened. The morals of this story are this. Voice is right about nipping classroom disruptions in a bud. You don't necessarily have to do this with a heavy hand, but you have to do it. Remember the issue is not your ego or comfort, but your student's comfort. I do believe that The students I had to confront wanted to do the right thing, but reacted badly in a moment of strain. The, quote, discipline I handed out may not have seemed strong, but under the circumstances, I felt that the students did not need to be punished or have a detailed explanation of classroom decorum. Rather, they needed a way to cool off, apologize, and save face. I think the wise word of wisdom here of many of the things that she mentions is, the importance of of confronting something when something is not working and something's distracting the classroom because those are things i've learned a few times uh, not so much even in higher ed but in corporate training uh, i've had a couple of times where someone's been distracted to the distracting to the class for whatever reason and it was a minor distraction but it was an annoyance and it kept on going and i didn't address it and then uh, days or weeks later, as the class went on or the training course went on, it became way more of an issue. So I have learned to lean into uncomfortable situations proactively. When I shared the manure story, I shared about getting to speak with Ken Bain. And this next person, James Lang, is also someone who I just absolutely admire. And I was joking when he was on the show recently to share about his new book called Small Teaching, that one of the reviewers on iTunes had said that I don't gush too much. And I said I might gush too much in that episode. And he was kind enough to call in and share about one of his failures in teaching. And that's actually a recent one. Hi, Bonnie. This is Jim Lang, and I'm calling to uh, share a story with you for the podcast on what we can learn from our teaching failures. And I'll tell a very recent one, in part to show that these teaching failures still happen after 16 years of full-time teaching and lots of writing about 
teaching and learning in higher education. I left some points on my syllabus in my literature survey class this semester for students to help decide uh, what assignment they wanted to do. And so what we decided about halfway through the semester was that we were going to have the students create three-minute videos designed to focus on the historical context for the literature we were reading. And it seemed like a great idea, and they were excited about it, and I was too, and put them to work, and I had the tech folks come in and give them a little tutorial on making these three-minute videos with iMovie, and explained to the students that these would potentially be ones that we could you know, make available to the public for other teachers to use in their survey classes. And I did not think about all the possible things that could go wrong with the making of these videos or what the products might actually end up looking like without me having ever made one myself. So I uh, got the first video in and showed it in class, and it was just so far from what I had been expecting in a variety of ways. And I just kind of stood there not knowing what to say, knowing that there were eight other groups that still were making videos, and this was the first video that they saw. And it was just completely different from the, what I wanted all the groups to be doing. So, so I didn't really know what to do. I kind of fumbled my way through it. And in the end, over the course of several weeks, managed to slowly kind of help shape the assignment in, into something that was closer to what I was hoping that they would achieve. But it, it really was a very sharp reminder to me that when I ask students to do something, I need to be very aware of, of all the criteria, be very clear to them about what kinds of things I'm expecting to see in an assignment. And if I don't do that, I may get anything. So I did learn from that, and it was a good reminder for me that about the importance of creating at least a rubric for the students or a very clear set of criteria for both myself and them as I go forward, with, especially with new assignments, ones that I'm trying for the first time. So I will learn from that in the future. Thanks for um, doing this podcast and for helping to celebrate our teaching failures uh, and how we can turn them into successes. Thanks. I loved hearing this story, and it reminded me that this can go both ways. We can assign something new, and we've never tried it before, and we can have students not at all produce the kind of work that we were anticipating in a less than appealing way and not really live up to the expectations of the assignment or the real objective of doing it in the first place. But I recently had an experience where I assigned something for the first time, and had the opposite where the student said, yeah, we weren't really sure what you wanted and we were going to actually send you an email with pictures and, and make sure that it was what you wanted. And I said, I'm so glad that you didn't because they completely blew me away. And I'll be sharing about this either in a blog post or an upcoming episode. It was a poster session assignment that I gave them in my consumer behavior class that completely just flabbergasted me in terms of the quality. Again, I'll be sharing about that. But Jim, you are so right, just the importance of articulating why we're doing an assignment and then at least some minimal framework for what a quality <laughs> job on the assignment is going to look for. And thanks so much for sharing your story. The next story comes from Cameron Hunt McNabb. She's also been on the show. You can see a theme here. I did send out a number of emails to past guests inviting them to share. And she shares, when I was a grad student, just starting teaching in the composition classroom, I had a student ask me a question in class that I didn't know the answer to. At the time, I felt like I had to know everything in order to be a good teacher, so instead of admitting that I didn't know the answer to the student's question, I dismissed it by saying something like, we can talk about that later. 
It shuts down the class discussion and probably made other students hesitant to ask more questions. Later, though, in grad school, when I first began teaching as an assistant professor, I reflected on how it might be useful for students to see that sometimes the professor doesn't know everything and instead model curiosity, inquiry, and research. I think this approach also pushes against the banking model and shows how learning can be cooperative, too. So when students asked questions that I didn't know the answer to or weren't 100% sure of the answer, I began to say, that's a great question. I'm going to see if I can find that out. Why don't you look too and let's see what we can come up with for the next class. One student specifically commented on this approach in his her course evaluation, noting that it made him her feel able to find out things and learn on his or her own. I was thinking in context of all of these stories, Bonnie, that uh, I mean, I've said before, I feel like, you know, I'm in the midst of greatness every time you have me on the show here because there's so many talented, thoughtful, just uh, well-educated uh, leaders in higher education that are on the show now. And yet, how many have and continue to experience failure and and have struggled through that and have made mistakes? And I think that that's just a really... It's a good reminder for all of us, even when you're at the top of your game in a lot of ways, you're probably dealing with failure as much as anyone else. And um, I think back to what Anissa Ramirez said on the show a while back, uh, scientists have a different word for failure. They call it data. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I've, I've used that quote a number of times with clients even in thinking, just reframing our perception of how we view failure. And if we if we take that as data and start thinking about how then we use that data to make the experience better for ourselves and our students, I think that's that's huge. The next story comes from Maha Bali, and I first became aware of who she is on Twitter and what a wonderful resource Twitter can be for us to connect and share about our failures and successes in our teaching. And Maha teaches in Egypt and has such a unique perspective in terms of some of the things we have in common culturally and then some of the differences that we have. And particularly, she's going to share a story about really just the high-pressure testing environment there and an experience that she had with one of her students. I totally deserve a manure award. I laughed at my students' suffering. Well, almost. I used to be a teacher educator, so this happened in a class of students who were in-service teachers, and the student teacher was quite a bit older than myself. One of my students was talking about how one of her Sanawiyama exams, that's the high-stakes final school exams in Egypt, was so difficult, she cried during the exam. I was like, why would you cry about that? I am such a brat. I didn't grow up in Egypt. I've always had westernized private schooling. I was fortunate that my parents never put me under pressure about exams and such, and that I generally did well enough in school that I never had to feel that way. I was totally unempathetic, and I didn't even realize it at the time. And then, I'm not entirely sure why none of my students called me out on it. How could I deny someone the right to feel pressure in an environment that is really, you know, high pressure in this country? Where these exams are so high stakes, your future depends on how well you do on them, and you can feel your career choices slipping through your hands when you see an exam you feel you can't succeed in. How could I totally dismiss all that context and make my student feel bad for breaking down and crying? Wasn't it bad enough that she actually went through that? Not only was I unempathetic, I also silenced her and demonstrated to others that voicing vulnerability or weakness in my class would receive a harsh response. Total teaching fail. Thankfully, I somehow woke up at 3 a.m. realizing I'd made a mistake, 
I sent all my students a long email apologizing for my behavior. I'd hurt one of them, but I apologized to all of them because I recognized the repercussions of what I'd done. And I promised to give her time in our next class session to tell her story in full, uninterrupted, and that I would listen with an open heart. That was actually one of my best teaching moments. One of my student teachers responded thanking me for how my email inspired her to be a better teacher by admitting mistakes and trying to rectify them. And that's how I turned manure into gold. Um, well, not really. I can't promise I stopped making stupid responses in class. I am too spontaneous to ever be that good, but I definitely learned that making mistakes and admitting them can be better than never making mistakes at all. I like her a lot, especially <laughs> the fact that she started with, I totally deserve manure award. <laughs> That's awesome. Absolutely. And Dave, I know you are going to be sharing our last failure story. Yes, this is from our friend Doug McKee, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. And Doug, who's been on the show, uh, I think twice now, right? So Doug wrote in and said, it was my first day teaching my first class ever, an advanced undergraduate seminar on the economics of aging. I had just given my students a rough outline of the topics we were going to be covering that semester, and I try and and I was trying to communicate a big idea. To be an economist requires having intuition about how humans make decisions, as well as the mathematical skills to model such behavior. This combination is what I love about the field. I wanted them to exercise their own intuition, and since they were all college age, I asked them questions about how their grandparents made big decisions in old age. What did your grandparents do for a living? Have they retired? How do you think they decided when to retire? This was a total failure. Half the class didn't know what their grandparents did. Three quarters didn't know if they were retired, and the rest had no idea how they had made that decision. They had no experience or intuition at all. I think I understand way better now what kinds of issues my students think are important and what they actually have intuition about. Connecting what I'm talking about to these things makes a huge difference in how much they get out of the class. Later on in that first semester, we had a class on elder care. How do families decide who should take care of an older member of the family when they can no longer live on their own? Almost everyone in the class had something to contribute as they had just returned from Thanksgiving break, and that was an incredibly common topic of conversation amongst their families over Thanksgiving dinner. This has turned out to be true every year I've taught the course, and it's always the best class of the term. What's so fun about using the skills of metacognition in our own teaching is that we can just keep getting better when we recognize that we've had a failure like that. And then we can turn it around and just gradually over time in ebbs and flows, just keep getting better at what we do. Thanks so much, Doug, for sharing the story. It really reminds me of the conversation I had with Aaron Daniel Annis on the episode about calibrating our teaching and just how hard that first year is because you don't have that context. You don't really know where the students are experiencing coming into college or, or continuing on their college experience. So thanks so much for that. I have to admit something, Dave. What's that? It's time to award a manure award. And you were driving home in traffic and didn't get to participate in this process. I actually had a way of evaluating the stories. It was going to be the strength of the failure as in how magnificently large was the failure, and then the strength of the continued learning over time. And as I was going through evaluating the stories, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't pick a winner that way. So I decided to pick it in a little bit of a different way. Because to me, I could have given the award to any of these stories. And I do appreciate so much people writing in. But the person who was on the show, I think she's actually the only person on the show who's not been on the show before is Maha Bali. 
And when I was writing back and forth to her, I did admit a bit candidly that the reason I've not invited her to be on the show is not because I don't know for sure what a great contribution she would make to this conversation, but just my own fear and reluctance over having someone that is in such a different context than me. And just being so terrified that I would just fumble over my words and ask something that is, you know, kind of like, oh, you live in Egypt? Do you know this guy? <laughs> just kind of like, or like, could you say something that represents all Egyptians because you happen to be from the, I just, I just figured that I would do something really dumb like that. But I thought, well, you did something really dumb like that with someone that you do have a lot in common with here in America, Ken Bain, and you still somehow survived after that. <laughs> and and then the other thing that came to mind is I wouldn't even know, maybe I shouldn't be admitting this, but I wouldn't even know how to send her a gift for her manure award. Because I was thinking if I wanted to like send an Amazon thing, is it like I'd have to do the, do I do the Egypt store? Or do I do my, and so I thought, well, that would be great because you could give the manure award. I actually saw that someone had sent something out to Maha for, I believe it was for her daughter, a gift or something like that. I thought someone has figured out how to get something from the United States, although I think this person might be from Canada, but but nonetheless, someone outside of Egypt knows how to have a gift arrive. And that would be a good challenge for me. And it could just be an excuse for me to invite her officially to be on the show and get over my own reluctance in creating more manure in future episodes and just overcome that fear and probably learn something about, you know, international gift giving, I could learn more about her and something she might enjoy or maybe find out something about her daughter that her daughter may enjoy. It's just uh, it's just another case for the importance of good dialogue and talking with others because it turns out you're married to someone who might know something about how to uh, get a gift across international borders. Well, there we go. There you go. See, you didn't have to go very far at all. I didn't. And the last thing that we're going to talk about is recommendations, although we're not going to each give a new recommendation. What I did is I went back through you were in traffic a long time this afternoon, and I, I was doing everything boy, I could. Did you, you could not underestimate that. <laughs> there, there's everything. some realities of living in Southern California that never go away entirely. I was doing everything I could to procrastinate doing the school side of the work that I should have been doing this afternoon. And I was going through looking at all the recommendations that the various guests have given over the last almost two years. And I will say, first of all, there are a lot of books recommended on this podcast and a lot of amazing books recommended on this podcast. And also the guests that come on have frequently written their own books or maybe more than one book. And let me just say there are a lot of books that people have recommended that I haven't gotten to, but one that I would just mention real quick, Dear Committee Members, a novel by Julie Schumacher. That was a great book. I did end up reading that one. And then Teaching Naked by Jose Bowen. Uh, had him actually on the show and was able to have him share with the community. And then Sean Michael Morris recommended a wonderful book called Savvy by Ingrid Law and not only recommended it, but had the author send it to me with the front page inscribed by her. So nice. And now my mom's read it. And I ended up buying the second and the third book in the series. It's just a wonderful series. That's kind of a little bit Harry Potter esque with just uh, the savvy is the magical powers that these family members possess. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book for reading. And then Cameron Hunt McNabb had recommended from Tina Fey's memoir, Bossy Pants, just this idea that we should say yes to more stuff. So there's been a lot of great books. Amy Collier recommended Anne Lamott, who said 
These are the words I want on my gravestone, that I was a helper and that I danced. There's been a lot of tools that have been recommended. Doug McKee recommended Piazza, which is a discussion board, and I did use that. By the way, I'm mentioning books that I read or tools that I've used. And then Aaron Daniel Annis talked about the Amazon Echo, which has only gotten better since he talked about it on the show he was on. And then there were people who had just given inspiration for our teaching, such as Rebecca Campbell said, be kind to your students, don't make assumptions. Linda Nielsen said, cultivate your courage by trying out things you're afraid of. That's kind of the theme of today's episode for sure. Lee Scalarep Bassett, be hopeful, be optimistic, and give your students the benefit of the doubt right from the start. And then I shared about those poster sessions, which I plan on sharing more about because I really learned a lot from that experience. But that was all inspired by Doug McKee, who had blogged about his poster sessions with his students. And he and I went back and forth a little bit on how I might craft that into my teaching. And then lastly, Dave, I know this is one that you and I recommend pretty regularly about getting connected with people on Twitter. And that was from Peter Newbury, who talked about just building a community and having a community of people that are like us and also people who are not like us. And I know I just get blown away by the power of that network. It's really incredible what we can learn by going up there. Well, and my recommendation is to keep listening to the show, and perhaps that's a little self-serving, but I, I, I just really am impressed with what you've created in uh, starting the show and the community building around it and the authenticity that you bring to the conversations. I mean, there's so many things you've done with this show that I've been thinking about in my own show and, and bringing that together. And, and I'm really, I'm, I'm so inspired to see so many people passionate about talking about good teaching in higher education for whatever reason, that's not been a, a major focus of a lot of higher education institutions. And I'm really excited to see that come together here. So thanks for allowing me to be a small part of it. And thanks for joining me on this episode about failure and just for being such a good model, I guess, for me as a teacher that we can take these experiments and see what happens. (laughs) I'm so grateful to be able to play along. It's been fun. 